Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This episode is part of our Minute CE curriculum. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. I'll start off with a question then. Um, so when you decide to treat a patient with ILD-associated pH and your go-to is either sildenafil or um, Tynazo, how do you approach the patient? What do you talk to the patient about what their expectation is or what the expectation is for the patient? Because oftentimes these patients come in and their major complaint is, I'm on oxygen and I hate being on oxygen and all I want to do is get off oxygen. So as they get referred to the pulmonary hypertension clinic as their comorbid condition, how do you approach the patient and have that conversation? Yeah. Uh, Mike, that, that is a great question, and, and it's something that we try to address on the first visit. Um, you know, one of the things that I, that I disclose with patients who come and they have significant um, interstitial lung disease is, is that there's not a single reason why they're short of breath or they're symptomatic, and, uh, and, and we're going to try to find ways to make them feel better. Uh, if they have significant pulmonary hypertension, we can address that. Medications for pulmonary hypertension tend to improve pulmonary hypertension, but uh, at least as, as far as we know now, they don't improve uh, their underlying inter interstitial lung disease. So there's always going to be uh, a ceiling effect on the pulmonary hypertension uh, therapy that we that we give them to them. And I, I tell them, you may experience some improvement in, their sim in your symptoms as we go, but there may be a threshold where even though we're increasing your pH therapy, you may not feel as better as you were feeling before. And, and that may be the ceiling effect in, um, that it's imposed by their interstitial lung disease. Um, the other thing that, that I disclosed very early on is uh, pH medical therapy is not intended um, to, to get you off oxygen. And, uh, and I never, never promise that. It, it's happened very occasionally. Um, but I actually, I give them the reality that pulmonary hypertension medication can potentially worsen their VQ mismatch. And, and make them need more oxygen. So, so that's something that is disclosed even before we get to the record catheterization on their initial visit. But, yes, Val. Uh, patients or the CTD patients, can you both talk a little bit about some of the things that influence your choice of therapies for them? You know, because they tend to have a lot of comorbidities, they tend to have a lot of GI issues, and many of our pH therapies have GI issues. You know, sometimes their hands are very affected, and it can, you know, can pose challenges for parental issues. So, you know, these are common problems that we face every day. So, I thought maybe you can summarize yeah. that. Yeah, it's a great, great question. Um, they are complicated patients, right? And whether it's the all the comorbid non-lung and heart conditions like their GI issues going on or like your case that you presented, the patient that has a little bit of ILD but has a lot of PAH and trying to figure out what's the right, right uh, drug going forward. So um, I think what, uh, at least in our cl clinical practice, I tend to follow the... Um, you know, we tend to follow the standard ambition protocol. Like I tend to, my first go-to is an ERA and a PD-5 for these patients. We do worry about fluid retention in them if they have concomitant underlying heart issues. And then um, uh, I would say that uh, when we get to the point of discussing, uh, discussing prostacyclin for them, I would probably be more toward, leaning more towards inhaled prostacyclin or parenteral rather than the oral agents because of the GI issues that our scleroderma patients tend to have. I, and, and I agree with, with everything you said, Mike. I, I would add the fact that, um, you know, 
I am more concerned about fluid retention with scleroderma patients in particular. Um, there is a high prevalence of diastolic dysfunction, and there was a very interesting study that was published a couple of years ago, uh, data from Denmark, showing that um, actually the presence of diastolic dysfunction on echo predicts mortality even a little bit better than a pulmonary hypertension does, probably because we don't have very good therapy for diastolic dysfunction as we have for pulmonary hypertension. So sometimes what I what I consider when starting an ERA, uh, I may give them a prescription for a diuretic, and if they start having swelling, you know, they will they will start that diuretic right away. So we will be prepared to 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 face that. Um, pump discussion sometimes can be very very difficult because some patients do need parenteral prostacycline. Um, but um, their fingers may have a lot of scleroidactyly. There may be a lot of retractions. Um, some of the newer pumps that are coming from IV or sub-Q administrations have um, devices that are a little bit too technological, even for elder patients. So um, it, it's a very in individualized uh, discussion, and uh, I, I don't think that I have a prescription for, for everybody who, have, who has um, connective tissue disorders. Yeah, so I agree. They're they're a challenge, and sim and similarly, like, you know, these patients in the reveal registry made up a quarter. I think it's probably a larger proportion than that at our place, um, just because of the big scleroderma program. Maybe maybe at Northwestern as well, Mike. Um, but you know, taking that treatment discussion one step further, when we do risk stratification, sometimes there's you know, there's more challenges with the scleroderma patients as well because they have other problems, other comorbidities, other musculoskeletal issues that can affect things like their hall walk, like their functional class. They also have a, a lot of other symptoms. So can you just tell us a little bit about, you know, as you go through not just the first treatment choice, but as you go through the reassessment and the risk stratification, some of the other things that you take into consideration as you treat a scleroderma patient? Yeah. So, uh, Scleroderma patients in particular are challenging because of their comorbidities, but you know, lupus patients are as well. Rheumatoid arthritis patients can have a lot of musculoskeletal issues. Um, I would say that when I have a suspicion that musculoskeletal issues are affecting their six-minute walk distance, which um, will affect their wrist certification, um, I try to look at other things such as the echocardiogram. If they have a normal uh, right ventricle, and by that I mean a completely normal right ventricle that I can look at and, and put at, lay eyes on and, and, and make sure that um, the size, the function is, is, is good. Looking at that RVOT Doppler notching, if, it's, if it was there before, but it was, it's not present right now, it makes me suggest that the PVR might, may be improved. And the other thing that I find very simple and, and actually very rewarding is when a patient comes with a severely elevated BNP and then I can normalize that. I, I think that's a very objective and powerful uh, piece of information that helps me decide that this, despite the fact that they may be still low intermediate risk or high intermediate risk, maybe their risk is overestimated because of that six minute walk distance. 
Yeah, I agree. I, I don't want to say I do this more in our connective tissue disease patients, but I do think, especially in a scleroderma patient, the trends in the walk tests, as you say, are they can't, maybe they, as we look at like reveal risk score where our, the risk scoring system is dichotomized at a distance that a patient can walk, maybe our scleroderma patients are going to walk less than 300 meters or less than 200 meters because they've got contractures and their legs are down. So maybe the trend in that individual patient over time carries a little bit more weight than the the actual number that's driving the reveal risk score down. And again, I don't know if I want to say more, but yeah, the other parameters on the echocardiogram that we're looking at, are am I really convinced that my therapy is improving the function of the right side of the heart for that patient, um, which is harder in a scleroderma, pop, uh, scleroderma patient? Yeah, Ruben. We mentioned lupus and how patients with lupus and if they're in an active layer or have lupus um, ongoing, treating their lupus impacts their pH and their pH uh, um, overall. Is that, do you think that that in some select populations represents a population of patients in which withdrawal of pH therapy might be possible if their lupus activity is well under control, they're on their baseline immunosuppression, their RV is normalized, these are young in most cases, female patients who have that disease. Is that a population like the endarterectomized CTEF patients where we could start to think about withdrawal therapy? Yeah. That's a great question. So if a lupus patient comes in with a lupus flare and their pH looks terrible and you get the lupus under control and the pH gets better, can you withdraw pH-directed therapy? I'm going to say one not answer to your question, and then I'll try and answer your question. One, we have had, and I'm sure you have had over the years, many vigorous discussions with our rheumatology colleagues about the idea of could the flare of the pH or the pH itself be the evidence that the lupus is active and therefore we need to treat the lupus. And there's always a healthy or oftentimes a healthy back and forth about maybe pH should be one of the criteria for lupus in there. Um, so I think that argument is important to make sure the lupus is being treated. But I do think in a lupus patient that gets treated and everything normalizes, I think there is a pathway. I mean, withdrawal of pH therapy is always a troubling thing and always difficult conversation. But I think there is a pathway in those patients to say, well, maybe we draw back. But like any patient, you're going to draw back with close follow-up in them and say, we're going to watch it really closely as we withdraw these things away and see. And again, I think everything in medicine, but particularly pH, is you know expectation setting with the patient is extremely important, right? And to say to a lupus patient, if you start getting short of breath, I'm going to be worried your lupus is active, and I want to make sure your rheumatologist is involved, and we're going to re-escalate therapy if you're off it. No, I 100% I agree. I think that lupus is a little bit different than the rest of the PAH patients. Um, and, and I do think that there is a component to, you know, if a patient is having an active lupus flare, I would look at them a little bit different and with more caution. Um, if their pH is based on echo and um, their right ventricle looks good, I usually, you know, tell them just, if they're in the hospital, let's just wait for the lupus flare to come down. Let's reevaluate you back in clinic in a couple of months with an echo and, and see how you're doing. Uh, anecdotally, um, I have a patient who we diagnosed in the hospital, which I didn't think that was having a lupus flare. Um, the rheumatologist didn't think either. And the pH was quite severe. PBRs in the 15s, uh, cardiac index of 1.7. So we decided to go with triple upfront combination therapy. She was an IV hypoprosinol. And six months later, she's feeling great. We do a right cath. The PVR is two, and the cardiac index is five. 
and she was in a, in, in a pretty low dose of uh, IV poprosinol. She was in 12 nanograms. So that was a patient that, you know, we had a shared decision making and we said, okay, you know, this is clearly too much. So we're going to cut down and she, we were able to successfully wean her off IV poprosinol and she's doing phenomenal. Actually, I saw her two weeks ago. So, um, so, so that's, that can happen. And certainly a, I consider it a special population. All right, we're going to wrap it up and uh, break for lunch, and then we'll resume at 1 o'clock with a discussion of left heart disease-associated pH. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Global Learning Collaborative, GLC, and Total CME, LLC, and is part of our Minute CE curriculum. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.